Often, during my days of house arrest, it felt as though I were no longer a part of the real world. That's Aung San Suu Kyi, the woman long considered an icon of democracy in Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. She had come to Norway to accept the Nobel Peace Prize, two decades after she won the award. She'd been under house arrest for most of those years, unable to leave her country. As the days and months went by, and news of reactions to the award came over the airwaves, I began to understand the significance of the Nobel Prize. It had made me real once again. It had drawn me back into the wider human community. And what is more important, the Nobel Prize had drawn the attention of the world to the struggle for democracy and human rights in Burma. For five decades, Burma languished under hardline military rule. But when Aung San Suu Kyi was finally able to claim her Nobel Prize in 2012, her country was undergoing a profound shift. Then, this November, the unthinkable happened. A landslide victory for Aung San Suu Kyi and her party in Myanmar. Results trickling in showing the National League for Democracy on track to get enough seats in parliament to form the nation's first democratically elected government in decades. This was clearly a planned change in power. It wasn't a reform process that started with a revolution. There are many people there who are afraid of these changes and are fighting them. The road to reform is a bumpy, zigzag road. It's not going to be totally smooth. We are not yet at the end of our struggle, but we are getting there. Today we'll look at Myanmar's road to democracy. How did it emerge from decades of isolation and what lies ahead? I'm Eric Fish and this is the Asia Society Podcast. When I first went to the country in 1989, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi was traveling all over Burma protesting against what had been a very brutal crackdown and actually massacre. That's Tom Nagorski, Asia Society's executive vice president and a former ABC journalist who covered Myanmar for decades. My profound memories are, of, first of all, a country that was extremely tense. Uh, they'd already had a pretty nasty crackdown, and it was just uh, one of those places where you could really feel not just read about, but feel and see the presence of the military in almost all facets of life, at least those that I saw at the time. The previous year, in 1988, student-led protests had swept across Burma. Economic stagnation and political repression reached a breaking point. Millions took to the streets, calling for democracy. Armed troops opened fire on protesters several times throughout the movement. By the end, thousands lay dead. This is when Aung San Suu Kyi entered the political stage. She was the daughter of Aung San, a man revered as the father of modern Burma for his role in achieving independence from Britain, before he was assassinated in 1947. Up to this point, Suu Kyi had spent most of her life abroad and had recently returned to Burma to care for her mother. But the protest presented her with a higher calling. The then 43-year-old gave a speech before half a million people, calling for multi-party democracy. Then came the crackdown. Martial law, thousands of arrests, and the military junta banned gatherings of more than five people. Again, Asia Society's Tom Nagorski. I had traveled as a journalist to a lot of countries in various stages of development, and what was so depressing about Burma then was that 
it was beautiful country. It you the people were were wonderful and energetic and and, the, and, a, and a resource rich country. I just knew that from my reading before going in, and yet it was so uh, desperately poor and really. It felt even then sort of a few decades back in terms of time. In this tense, difficult moment, Aung San Suu Kyi helped found an opposition political party known as the National League for Democracy, or NLD. She tested the military, continuing to hold large rallies. Then, in the summer of 1989, she was put under house arrest. Open elections were held in 1990, and Suu Kyi's NLD party won in a landslide but the military junta nullified the results and remained in complete control for the following two decades. Aung San Suu Kyi was a political prisoner for most of this time. It wasn't until 2008 that political winds appeared to shift. That year, a new constitution was put forward by the military government, offering a path to a more democratic system with elections and separation of powers. This happened under the watch of General Than Shui, who had been the country's top leader for 16 years and was reportedly in ailing health. Though the new constitution was initially met with skepticism, it would later prove to be a turning point. This was clearly a planned change in power. That's Deborah Eisenman, executive director of the Asia Society Policy Institute and a leader in the organization's Myanmar initiative. As to exactly why, you know, only, only Than Shui knows, maybe the other um, senior generals in the party. But it really was sort of a top-down transition that came together after that 2008 constitution. The constitution isn't this amazing document for democratic freedom by by any sense of the word. Um, there are still very outdated laws in there from British times. It still keeps the military in you know 25% of the parliament, regardless of, of what election results would say. It still allows the military um, veto power over amendments to the constitution, I should say. But I think what Thon Chui's plan was, was to see a bit of a, a change in the structure. And you know he allowed for this quasi-military government to take place. These changes in Myanmar led to a change in U.S. policy. In 2009, the Obama administration began what it called pragmatic engagement with Myanmar. And if the new constitution had been one turning point, another, perhaps equally significant moment, came in November 2010. The Burmese pro-democracy leader Aung San Suu Kyi has been released by the country's military rulers. The moment that many thousands of Burmese people had been waiting for for years. Aung San Suu Kyi clambered onto steps at the gate of her home, a free woman. She waved and smiled at the thousands who'd gathered to witness this historic moment. In early 2011, Myanmar's half-century-old military junta was dissolved and replaced by a nominally civilian government, although the military-controlled USDP party was still firmly in charge. Retired General Thane Sane was appointed president, and over the coming years a rapid succession of reforms unfolded. Many political prisoners were freed, peaceful assembly was legalized, new labor laws allowing for unions were passed, the economy began to open, and media censorship officially ended. It wasn't a reform process that started with a revolution or revolutionary pressure from below. That's Thant Mint U, chairman of the Yangon Heritage Trust and author of several books on Myanmar. He was speaking at an Asia Society event in New York. You had a military establishment that was willing to cede a certain amount of space or control but on its own terms. The Constitution, the way in which it's set up, the provisions in the Constitution, were all part of a package of things that the military wanted to have in place in order to move towards a slightly more open political right. uh, environment. I think one could say a reformist wing of that military establishment wanted to take things a little bit further and to push the envelope and to see a degree of political liberalization that may not have been in the cards mm -hmm. originally. In the fall of 2012, another milestone. 
Aung San Suu Kyi made a historic trip to the United States, her first in decades. She spoke at an Asia Society event in Washington, D.C. I would like to say how happy I am to be with you today, to be with the people of the United States who have stood by us through our hard years of struggle for democracy. We are not yet at the end of our struggle, but we are getting there. Suu Kyi also said she was willing to compromise with the ruling party as a way to bring greater democratic change. Politics is about compromise. It's about being practical. It's about being down to earth and to do what is best under the circumstances. Our people have been divorced from democratic values and democratic practices for many decades. In fact, many of them say, very, very frankly, we really don't know what democracy is, but we don't want dictatorship. That same week, days after Suu Kyi's appearance, President Thane Sein made his own trip to the U.S., and he too spoke at the Asia Society. The coinciding talks appeared to be a tacit signal that relations were warming between Myanmar and the U.S., as well as between the rival NLD and USDP parties. In his remarks at Asia Society, Thane Sein vowed to continue pushing reforms. Uh, there, there has to be stability and rule of law in the country. We'll have to lay down good foundation of, for the economy. If we, if we manage to do that, uh, we will be able to establish a stable political uh, system, uh, a stable democracy. Uh, I don't think that, that there will be any reversal in the political transition. In the years that followed, there were concerns that reforms were backsliding. Meanwhile, a succession of ethnic and religious flare-ups threatened the stability that Thane Sein warned was necessary for democracy. But elections were called for 2015, with all parliamentary seats up for grabs, aside from the 25% constitutionally reserved for the military. It was billed as a test of Myanmar's resolve to democratize. Would elections be fair enough for the NLD to win? And if it did, would the military uphold the results? In November, the world got an answer. The opposition, led by democracy figurehead Aung San Suu Kyi, appear on course for a landslide victory that would ensure it can form the next government. A top official in the military-backed ruling party has conceded defeat. The UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has issued a statement congratulating the people of Myanmar for their election. He said that they had uh, had a peaceful, dignified and enthusiastic participation in what he called a historic election. He congratulated the NLD and also commended the USDP, saying that they had had a dignified acceptance of the verdict of the people. When all was said and done, the NLD had won an overwhelming majority, giving it more than the two-thirds of seats in Parliament needed to form a government and choose the president. It was a landslide that few saw coming. I don't think the military saw it coming to this level. You know, I think people voted with their hearts. You had a lot of people turn out for USDP rallies and things like that, partly because they were paid or there was some kind of you know, food or something that was given at these rallies, which happens in, in many, many countries, of course, not just Myanmar. And I think that it might have been translated that showing up to one of those rallies indicated that you would be voting that way. But of course, ballots are secret. And so I don't think people felt that you know, just because I showed up at a rally, it certainly doesn't dictate how I had to vote. You paid me my 10,000 shot to go there, so I went. I think if you are in that country as an ordinary citizen, unless you are really a, a senior citizen, you've not seen any example or evidence of good governance and prosperity in your lifetime. That's Tom Nagorski again. What you have seen in recent years, even as Myanmar opened up a little bit, is 
you know, they start to get a bit more news and information and they see, wow, look at the so-called Asian tigers. It's an old term now, but all around us, there are countries that are performing very well that have all sorts of, whether it's technologies or creature comforts or just better standards of living than we do, with the possible exception, I guess, of Laos. And here we are uh, floundering, uh, relatively speaking. So there's all that. And then you graft onto that a woman who, she has some faults, but Aung San Suu Kyi is probably as popular a figure, both politically and just as a, for those who meet her in person in that country, as there is on the world stage. I mean, it'd be hard-pressed to think right now. It's not quite Nelson Mandela, and actually Nelson Mandela, for other reasons, had enemies. I don't know that Aung San Suu Kyi has a great many you know, she's very magnanimous, generally speaking. Uh, she had a, a, a humility and a, uh, also a lack of vengeance, which I think has stood her very well. And so you take the, the combination of the military regime really having very little to show for itself as governors of their nation and their people, and a woman who has this just extraordinary stratospheric popularity. And I think you understand that there's an equation for a landslide there. Aung San Suu Kyi herself isn't currently eligible to become president, since her two children have British passports, and the Constitution bars anyone with foreign relatives from holding the presidency. She has indicated, though, that regardless of whether she's president, she will be the one calling the shots. Tom Nagorski explains that with this newfound power, she'll also assume responsibility for some of the country's most contentious issues. If you look in, in the halls of Congress in Washington or the EU in Brussels or in other parts of the world and you say Myanmar or Burma, I think people think Aung San Suu Kyi, I think they think military regime, and I think increasingly they think the plight of the Rohingya Muslims. In the recent elections, the NLD didn't field any Muslim candidates, and despite comprising as much as a tenth of Myanmar's 54 million people, not a single Muslim won a seat in Parliament. Most people of the stateless Rohingya Muslim minority were prevented from voting on the grounds that they're not full citizens, even though most have lived in the country for generations. This is just one of many ethnic and religious issues that's come into the spotlight since reforms began. Recent years have seen numerous clashes between Buddhists and Muslim minorities that have left hundreds dead. A long dormant rebellion among the Kachin minority is also reignited in the north. I think that when a diverse society that's been held under repression for 50 years is suddenly released from that, the society itself has not developed the mechanisms and the institutions to negotiate their differences. That's Priscilla Clapp, a former chief of mission at the U.S. Embassy in Myanmar and a senior advisor to the Asia Society Policy Institute. She was speaking at the Asia Society event. You release the repression, the repressive hand, the, the layer of repression on top of it, people start acting out. What we're seeing is communal violence. We're seeing society acting out. This isn't the government so much as it is the society itself that has, that has been held in a state of suspended animation for, for too long. It's not a modern society. It's almost a feudal society. And they're being forced into the 21st century very fast. And there are reactions to it, uh, particularly from, from conservatives who are trying to protect cultural heritages. The first two years of change created unrealistic expectations because it happened so fast and so unexpectedly. And all they've done is just slowed down. They just haven't fulfilled, they haven't continued the pace of change that they started those first two years. Um, and the society is beginning to, 
to act out in different ways. And there, there are many people there who are afraid of these changes and are fighting them. There are also questions about how effective the new NLD-led government will be, given that many of the incoming leaders have little or no governance experience. Tom Nagorski warns against oversimplifying an appealing narrative and letting expectations get ahead of an uncertain reality. There has been a dynamic over the last quarter century, which as a journalist I used to get criticized for sometimes, and I think now we are done with that dynamic, and that is that the way to look at the country was uh, it's the lady against the junta. And you heard that in a sarcastic vein whenever you would talk to seasoned diplomats or Burmese themselves who said, look, that's a very nice storyline. It's this great, wonderful, much-loved, sophisticated, Western-educated, brave woman against the big, bad generals. And, of course, it was true. And it's a, it's a very, um, you know, it's, uh, it's hard not to embrace that story, and it was hard as a journalist not to always come back to some form of it. It was like Mandela uh, a little bit. It's like Lech Walesa in Poland if you go back to to Eastern Europe and all these kinds of things. But now the junta is probably a word we shouldn't even use anymore. It's it's just a military. It's not a military regime. It's just a military. And the lady is now, she's not just a lady. She's a very special woman in a very special country in a very special role. But she now uh, has to take that She's done it a little bit already, but she has to take that giant leap, which Mandela took, which Lech Walesa took, Václav Havel, it's a long list, really, of dissident, prisoner in all those other cases, to president or at least person in a profound position of governing and ruling the country. And some of those people did better than others. And it's not, you know, the training for one and the courage involved and, you know, in success in one of those domains does not necessarily in any way guarantee success in the other. Tom Freston, a former CEO of Viacom who's been going to Myanmar since 1976, most recently to do aid work, warns that another area where expectations should be managed is in business. In recent years, as reforms have unfolded, many economic sanctions from the international community have been lifted. And after what appears to have been a mostly free and fair election, this looks set to continue. This has many international companies and investors licking their lips. Just like the narrative about Aung San Suu Kyi and the regime is sort of irresistible, there's this irresistible narrative that, you know, this is one of the last big markets of the world Mm -hmm. and uh, we're suddenly going to, you know, turn it over and everyone's going to, you know, transform instantly into great worldwide consumers. But, you know, it's a very naive view because it's a country, again, with an infrastructure that is poor, that is getting rebuilt. And, you know, there's just, there was just no ability to handle all the people who came in. The banking system, uh, any of the reforms that had to do with the banking system or setting up uh, certain industrial zones or you name any number of things, just the rule of law and a legal system that uh, was up to international standards has moved much more slowly than most corporations would want. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the fact is that smarter corporations are moving in there. They've adjusted their, I think they've adjusted their uh, expectations, and and we're seeing that change. They're starting from zero. That's Priscilla Clapp again. So Mm -hmm. it's not a modern economy yet where, I mean, Tom's talking about you know, companies that want to invest in a modern economy, they're not there yet. And it's also highly corrupt. They have to learn a different way of doing business. And I think the more Western business gets involved there, 
the more they're going to move in the direction of becoming a modern economy. They'll, they'll get it. Mm -hmm. They learn very fast. But I think there's been a lot of progress on the economic side. Deborah Eisenman, who's traveled to Myanmar several times in the past few years, says that economic progress is apparent on the streets in the country, whether it be in the form of vastly improved roads and infrastructure or in the number of cell phones you see in the capital but there's still a very long ways to go. The economic reforms haven't trickled down to the majority of people. So 70% of the country or so are agrarian, they're farmers. Reforms haven't made it to them yet. Like, yes, cell phones are available, things like that, but better market access aside from you know cleaned up roads isn't there yet. So those are the things where I think people are actually quite level-headed about what's happening. I think the expectations for reform are actually much stronger coming from the West. Well, one thing just to keep in mind is it's still a country where the third of the people live in extreme poverty. That's Tom Freston. And so many of the problems that we see are a result of that. And if you just look at the um, the amount of money that the government is able to spend or agrees to spend on things like health care and education, it's very low. It's not only the lowest in ASEAN, it's about the lowest in the world. I mean, Cambodia would spend four times as much per capita mm-hmm. on education than you have in Burma. There's got to be a way that they can more effectively raise those levels, get an infrastructure. I think there's something like five medical universities in the in the country right now of any significance. I think there's reason to be optimistic on that front. That's Thantamint U. I think you'll have a fairly populist parliament, people representing their constituencies, and they will be pushing for increased spending on health and education. I think that's, that's almost a given. I think um, the reason to be optimistic is also that, you know, I don't think the big picture is going to change, that the country is going to slowly come out of this isolation. Uh, it's not going to move backwards into, into military dictatorship. There is going to be economic growth. I think the thing is, though, that the, you know, the default scenario is also one where there could be rising inequality, there could be growing corruption, the kind that you see in many other countries in the region. And I think the, the question is really, can Myanmar do better than that, than the default scenario? Deborah Eisenman says Myanmar is just starting to scratch the surface of all the political, economic, and social reforms still needed. That shouldn't detract from what's already been accomplished. It seems like it will be a fairly smooth transition in power. Yes, that can change, but so far it seems that, you know, Thane Zane has said we will we will allow the NLD to sit, you know, things will move on. To me, that's a, a bit of a triumph. Those are the things that shouldn't be overlooked. Certainly there are, there are issues like the Rohingya and the treatment of Muslims in general that need to be um, hammered home. But for the most part, I think that this is this point looks like a success story in reform. And so that's one of the issues that I think should really be highlighted in a different way and not just the Myanmar government should X and the Myanmar government should Y and why aren't they doing this? You know, democratization is a process. To think that Myanmar could have built and consolidated democratic institutions in three to five years is absurd. No country is going to succeed in doing that. And so I think there are wins there that should be highlighted as the international community looks to help Myanmar further reform into a country that accepts even more democratic traditions. Tom Nagorski agreed, saying that as a nation of 54 million faces its next big hurdle under a new government, no one should lose sight of the big picture. I do think there's been so much written about the challenges that Myanmar face. It seems like every headline is a variation on uh, now comes the hard part. And I think that's true, but I also think it's unfortunate if we and the rest of the world, and certainly the Burmese people themselves, don't allow themselves and ourselves a moment to say, wow. Because in the glacial pace of these last five decades, which is what it's been since there's been a vote that was that free and that peaceful, there were long periods where even the most 
sophisticated Burma watchers never thought we'd be having a conversation like this. And I'm sure as optimistic and hopeful as Aung San Suu Kyi and her supporters have always been, there have to have been moments when they thought this will, you know, I will just live the rest of my days in this house under house arrest. Sure, there's a hard part and there are great challenges ahead. But you do, I think, want to just take a moment and acknowledge and appreciate that an extraordinary change has come to this country, and it's come thus far, uh, but I think all the signs are good, it's come peacefully. So that's a, that's a great moment. That's all for today. If you want to hear more episodes, you can go to asiasociety.org slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. Our music is by Thierry Mangmang and his ensemble, Shweiman Tabin Zapwe. They were performing live at Asia Society New York as part of a season of Myanmar. The news footage you heard in order of appearance was from Reuters, BBC, Arirang, Euronews, and News Asia. I'm Eric Fish, and we'll see you next time on the Asia Society podcast. <laughs>